This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today I'm talking with Ben Justman in person in beautiful Paonia, Colorado. Ben is a natural winemaker and a Bitcoiner. We talked a lot about his journey into winemaking and how he also got into Bitcoin and why he has such a high conviction for Bitcoin and the community around wine. It's a really fascinating and fun conversation with a friend of mine. Excited for you to listen. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We're here live in Peonia, Colorado with Ben Justman. Ben, how's it going, man? Hey, Tristan. Great to see you, man. Fun to have you out. Yeah, we've had some issues. This is my first in-person podcast I've done by myself. First podcast without co-host Ryan, so it's taken a minute to get set up. But Ryan, I know why he needs you. This is why we need Ryan, but... <laughs> No, it's great to do this kind of on a mini road trip here through the Mountain West, but Peonia is a pretty beautiful place to live. So you grew up here, you make wine, all natural wine, and you're big into Bitcoin. So why don't we start off with the wine story? How did you get into wine? Your dad grew wine, you kind of learned the ropes, but it's also big in this community. So how did you really want or find out that you wanted to dive into making wine because it's a pretty unique thing to do to do the wine story properly it's kind of my life backstory um my dad wanted to always retire to a farm and grow all his own food so when i was eight we moved from austin texas where he was designing and building homes to peonia um, a town of 2000 people that especially at that time was a, a coal mining, ranching and farming town. So quite a big shift. Um, grew up here on the farm, worked every summer and then left and never thought I'd move back here until I was older. But then I studied geology, traveled, ski bummed and kind of realized that I wanted to have my own business. And my dad had been growing grapes for a long time and making wine and nothing like he was a huge wine business guy or anything and was just kind of making it naturally, no additives, letting the wine make itself. And as I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, it just kind of hit me on a call with him that I could just make wine and kind of take over what he was doing. So he was just making enough wine for himself, pretty minimal infrastructure, but enough to get started with at least. And so in 2019, I got that idea in the spring, got all the paperwork done to get a liquor license. And then in that fall, I made wine and I'd never made wine before. So had a lot to learn and definitely read a ton of books before that, but it's really, I'm a hands-on learner and just figured I'd learn from my dad how to make wine. Um, and <laughs> pretty much like Came back, started making wine. He told me the basics of it, but pretty quickly I learned that he didn't really know what he was doing either. So gave me two feelings. One, all right, you're in this on your own. And two, wow, he made really good wine not knowing what he was doing. 
I can figure this out. And the key to figuring it out with natural wine is kind of just being hands off and letting the grapes do their thing. I mean, I don't realistically, like I don't add anything to the grapes. All I do is act as a shepherd and like physically move the grapes during different stages of the process into different places, different containers. And that leaves you with like a really high quality wine with that, with minimal intervention. So yeah, there's nothing to the wine except for the grapes at this point. Yeah. And that's, what's so cool about it, I think. And we'll dive more into like the nuances of organic and natural wines, but I'm curious. So you graduated college. Did you have like a, a real fiat job first and then kind of like dove into this or you're kind of in between stages? Like what was that? Like dive into that moment a little bit. Um, so my us. life goal always was go to college, ski bum, travel. And then figure out what I wanted to do after that. And that was super open-ended, but that was the, the fourth part. And so after living in Vietnam for a year, I just kind of got really bored, honestly. And so when you get bored, you start searching for things and started gravitating towards entrepreneurialism. I moved back to Vietnam and started a like t-shirt company that was very much side hustle. I think I sold three shirts, but I learned a lot. I learned that I didn't want to work online and then i got a geology job i was drawing geologic maps by hand and there was some good about it i wasn't on the computer all the time which was nice but i never got to go outside and it was pretty mind-numbing so i started another sticker company with a buddy who's a graphic designer then we got sidetracked didn't go anywhere but i kind of knew that this was like where my energy wanted to go and so after a year of working as a, ge as a geologist not making any real money or anything. I just wanted, I was kind of looking for something to dive into. Like, I don't want to go get another job. I just want, I want to start something, but like, what is it? And I want it to be big and I want to commit. Like, I'm really just looking for something to commit to. And weirdly enough, like, yeah, my backstory, my dad made wine, all that stuff. But like, I'd never made wine before. And weirdly, starting a winery was the low hanging fruit for me. Yeah, given the situation and everything. And yeah, I think that's important because a lot of people that jump into this entrepreneurial space, they either, there's always different paths, but you have the people who are kind of just like hustling, side hustles all the time through college and they get out and they just keep doing that. Um, but the real problem is that people get stuck in like the corporate job for like many years. But I feel like you never, yours was pretty short lived. So you're kind of almost looking for that, like, right away is that like how you had the mindset or not not totally like i i loved studying geology in college it was like we just the school i went to we take one class at a time for three and a half weeks it was on the block plan and then we go to our next class so between each class you get four and a half days you just go camping but during the classes i would go out into the field for a week or two like i would spend half of my college life camping for school that's badass like it was it was amazing I took my, I was going to be a physics major and, you know, doing a couple classes like deep in these <laughs> dark physics rooms. And then I take one geology class with my best friend. And I was just like, wait, we can go camping for school. I'm going to study this. And so that was amazing. And I got into the actual like geology world and I realized that it was not, it was not as like, it wasn't going to be like school. So the first year, or maybe not quite the first year of having that job, I was looking for another job in geology and then kind of just realized that there wasn't a career path for me. 
and learning more about myself. I'm mean, like 24, 25 at that point. Um, just realizing that I needed something more entrepreneurial to feel fulfilled. And like I said, I was doing those side hustles that I was putting a lot of energy into. They just didn't go anywhere. My heart wasn't in them. Um, and that's kind of where I knew I wanted something big that I could commit to. So, yeah, that's cool. And it's like we, we talked about on a previous podcast with Stephen uh, Rena, aka Tan Man, and he talked about like entrepreneurship and trying. Like, even if you know it's not going to be like a smashing success, like shipping things, like we were talking about earlier, like, it's a pain in the ass. And, and you kind of understand what it takes to like get a product out there or just try marketing or graphic design. Like, there's a lot that goes into a business that I think people don't realize especially if you're like a one-man show like you are which is awesome but it's good to try out some side hustles just to get your toes in the water um but i want to tap into maybe like yeah the outdoors that's well first off that's sick that you're in the outdoors camping so much in college like that's something for me that was totally disconnected and something i did when i was younger lost it in high school not in college and then end of college kind of when I was in Portland, Oregon, reinvigorated my love for the outdoors. Is that something you were raised just like outside, you know, in nature all the time? And you just had that principle instilled in you and still to this day do value very heavily? Well, I mean, I grew up on this farm, right? And also with friends in Paonia, what's there to do in Paonia? You just go into the woods. So I grew up outside. I grew up doing everything, like hanging out all the time outside. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, I wanted to be inside playing video games, but my parents did their best to keep that to a minimum. Um, so yeah, I grew up outside. I grew up, I mean, obviously doing a ton of sports, but I grew up skiing a ton. And so that was kind of my big introduction to being outside all the time, doing backcountry skiing, starting when I was 14 and then got to college and found my ski crew, did so much backcountry skiing. Um, the school, the school had so much money floating around that they gave us money to go on a couple ski trips up to Canada and just quote unquote study snow science, but we just skied. Um, so yeah, I've always been outside a ton and, and kind of really found my love for it in college because it was just kind of something that like, I guess I did in high school. Like I loved to go camping. It was just normal. I didn't really think about it too much, but then my life started really revolving around being outside in college. And um, after working in an office for couple years was that in a big city or where was that i was in denver okay so So yeah so doing you know a little bit 20 minutes of commuting but being inside all the time and by the first time ever like working in an office till 5 p.m during the the winter solstice and being like oh cool so i never saw the sun today which was pretty depressing and so i relatively viscerally like my health was horrible um one of my best ski buddies, who's a, like strong badass guy who had done a ton of amazing things with, like wanted. I was out skiing with him, and I, just, I was like, "No, nah, I'm done, man. I, I can't keep going." And he was like, "Something is wrong with you. Like, you need to. You might maybe you go see a doctor." But I didn't think much of it. I was just, you know, you're in it. You feel normal because it's your own normal. But in getting away from living in an op, working in an office, moving back home, living on the land. And, like working physically being outside and being well again, all those things combined realistically, like I do feel like I was I mean, like this is like you exaggeration, were sick. but like I was sick, I was like dying I was eating microwave because that was my time for lunch. Just yeah, my body was like 
dying. And now I'm back here and I feel alive again. So. Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, it's so like it's actually real. And I find that people who grew up like in a rural setting, like on a farm or just in nature, when they go to the cities, they get they feel it so much worse because they're just not like used to it, they're not adapted. And yeah, I mean, that's why I refuse to like work regularly in office because I know for a fact that like when I go in to an office or like at some conference or something like that i just by the end of the day i'm just drained like i'm just stripped like it's four or five o'clock and i just feel like so mentally drained whereas if i'm working from home you know it could be the equivalent amount of work but i'm like taking a break to go outside like i'm eating my own meals and i think it's a combination of just you know the artificial lighting like you're not getting any natural sunlight even through windows we know it's not the same um, you're just in like this high stress environment. You could argue about like EMF and Wi-Fi. Obviously, it's like a way higher concentration of all these things in a city too. And then, yeah, if you're physically living in a city, I mean, who knows? Like, it's just completely alien to growing up on a farm out here. And it's absolutely beautiful out here. You should all come, you know, visit one time in your life because it's the complete opposite of like a Denver or a big major city. And how long did it take you to kind of realize that or until that happened, like a year? Well, I mean, the whole time I was searching for something different. And it was just a matter of finding it, finding the next thing to put my energy into. Like, I would take a break in the workday to go on a walk outside and just, like, call someone and be like, what is going on? Like, what? Just trying to get my life together. Um, just, so, you know, I mean, as a lot of young guys especially do, is like, what am I doing with my life? Like, what I want to do something, but I don't know what it is. So yeah, I worked there for about a year and then I spent about the next the next year getting ready for like starting the winery, but yeah, I gotta wait till fall to actually make wine. So a lot of time I mean I'm bureaucracy is like the biggest headache in my life. So I spent the next year like spending all my free time banging my head against the wall metaphorically to get the liquor license and everything. Um and then I just was having enough with my job and was like, I can't do this for another year. So I spent two years at it. And then I knew I needed to wait another year. But once I made wine, like I don't have anything to sell for a while. Cool. You started a winery. You don't have any wine yet. You know, you got to wait two years. I guess my first time I waited a year and a half, but I had to figure out what I was going to do in that meantime. And my dad had a, a space on our property that was just like, dying for a house. I mean, you're sitting in it right now. Like it's a beautiful spot. And my dad designed and built houses his whole life. It was, he's 75 now. This was, he was 73 or so when we, when we built it, it was just kind of one of those things. Like I need to go build this house with my dad and he wasn't going to do it unless the kid was with him, one of his kids. So um, yeah, I moved back to my tiny town of Paonia, which I never thought I would do. And built this house but um it helped a lot that it was like right during the height of covid when i moved back because then i had no fomo leaving the city it was just like nah, this is the best life can be right now so but it was it still like a tough transition at first i mean i'm sure you had a lot of friends in denver and yeah there's a lot going on and it's mm -hmm. easy to kind of 
but at the same time, like people weren't hanging out, people weren't doing stuff. Um, and here you had a lot more freedom. I mean, in Denver, you're just kind of stuck in the city and then you go out to the mountains to de-stress and then you drive back all on the same road and you get stuck in traffic and you're stressed just like you were when you left. Yeah. It's, uh, I think the, the ploy of living in the city and yeah, the traffic, especially to go skiing on, mm-hmm. on the seventies, like so bad. I'm curious, did you tell your parents about like feeling unwell in the city or anything like that? And were they, you know, like I told you so, or you should move back home or were they happy no, when you moved back home? I didn't home? understand what was going on. Yeah. You know, I was just living and you know, what's, I kind of knew something was wrong with me, but like, you know, it wasn't this like this little, Oh my God, I'm stuck in the city. It was, I'm not happy right now. And I want to do something about it. And my version to do something about it was, um, you know, start the winery, start building a house. So like, yeah, if you want to talk hard transitions, moving from office labor or work from home. And honestly, I, I just couldn't work from home. So I quit my job a couple months before I was, before I moved back here. And then I moved straight into hard labor, building a house. That's the hard transition. My body was not ready for that. Yeah. But it's almost like it's a fulfillment, like differences. I think it's like when you're in a corporate setting, you're kind of just like, what are you actually working for? Mm-hmm. Just like tangible things is not really there. And you're just part of some like big conglomerate or something totally. like that. Whereas then you move home and yeah, it's hard work, but you have this, you know, physical, tangible thing. You build a house and then obviously you got into the wine and start mm-hmm. your own business. Like, from a fulfillment perspective, that must have just been like through the roof after, you know, you guys finished 100%. building yeah. a house. I mean, like during the whole time, I was just like walking around, like envisioning my future kids running around in this space. But, you know, there's only so much fulfillment that can power you when this floor is concrete and we made this by carrying 90 pound, 80 pound sandbags up the stairs. Like, I wasn't thinking about my kids at that point. It's just hard work at a certain point. But yeah, you finish the day and you're like, I got one step closer to being in a house that I'm going to live in. Probably like for a lot of the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's powerful. And it's like, it's just a sense of accomplishment. So that's awesome. How long did it take to build? So my dad and Jorge, the guy who helped us build it, he actually helped build my parents' house 20 years ago. Um, he, they, the land and poured the foundation for the garage and then i got here and i started working about june 1st and moved in about june 1st of the next year the rest of the house wasn't done but my one bedroom apartment that's in the in the house was done so i was able to move in so about a year and that whole time i was building the house and having the winery so for i mean really three years i had two jobs and the side hustle didn't make any money because I was waiting on the winery to, to actually have wine to sell. So is that is that something you realize as well with the winery, like as you're getting into it, that like you needed to have this kind of like low time preference mindset to be successful? And did you have like goals in the beginning or like, you know, things you were shooting for to achieve that you knew would take, you know, three, five years? Or were you kind of just like, I think this could be successful. I know it's going to take a bit of work and there's going to be learnings and we're just going to see where it goes. I kind of just sent it. Um, but I will say that the, I I would think I was raised to have a, a low time preference growing up on the farm. And um, that's the way my mind works best. Um, 
and it's very healthy for me to be in a, a spot that's super low time preference. But it also was extremely important because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was able to have all that time to learn. So obviously the wine making, you're thrown into the fire and I got to figure out how to make the wine and everything. But like the process of running a business and thinking about like how I want to market or design things, all that stuff, I had a year and a half, two, three years to think about before I ever had to execute. So I was given that time to really build this baseline and make sure I have a solid foundation for like the business aspect. And then all that needed was a good product. Yeah, so you kind of had time to think about like the marketing and bringing the product to people mm-hmm. in that time. That makes sense. What were some of the like you know the biggest hurdles or learnings that you had in those those first couple of years? I know you're briefly telling me about the wine. Well, yeah, I had a bunch of wine go bad. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah if you value that wine at what I sell it for today, that's like seventy thousand dollars of wine that went bad the first year. Um, I don't really think about it. I have wine now and the business is going well now and I've figured things out. But um, yeah, so that that first year, I'd never made wine before. I was not a big wine guy at all. I just, you know, grew up with a dad who had a vineyard and figured it out. But I, you know, I'm starting a winery and I don't know what I'm doing. Is this even good? Like, am I dedicating this life? And I'm about to... I'm about to spend so much more money on more grapes and do this again. So I'm in two years deep before I even know if I have product market fit with no experience on a product that like most people think is insane education to be able to even able to make. So like, yeah, I'm in my own head a ton. It was a very difficult time to have confidence because I had no proof. And I guess I'm someone who lives on proof. So I was opening up my barrels a lot for people that are knowledgeable to taste them. Because I wanted their feedback. I wanted, do I have good wine? Am I wasting my time? And opening up my barrels allowed a ton of oxygen and just oxygenated them. So not every one went bad. I mean, there's certain barrels that I guess I, I opened up more than others. So those got messed up. But all of, all of my first wines won awards at the Colorado wine competition. So I guess I was doing something right. Like, honestly, I was just happy they were drinkable. But the thing that really mattered was that they sold and I was able to sell them. And so that first year I sold wine. That was in 2021. 2021. I had did farmer's markets all summer. So the first farmer's market, I'm like, I have no idea if people are going to buy this. Like, I have no, I'm just guessing on pricing and messing around, doing a ton of experimentation in how I deliver the sale, how I do tastings, how I price things, my stand, you know, I'm just learning, just trying things. And so, yeah, I sold, I sold out that year and that was, that was really cool, but I didn't have that much wine. So I knew I had product market fit. I needed more product and I needed more sales avenues. So then the next year I had a lot more, last year I had a lot more product and started out doing five farmers markets a week. That was insane. Like, I thought I worked hard <laughs> building a house, but um, every day is like a 12 hour day when you do a farmer's market and you're talking to people all day, you're doing tons of physical labor, you're standing all day, driving all day, like nonstop. How was it like, you know, the first people who bought your wine? Like, is there a credibility thing? Like, do they ask you, you know, how long you've been doing this? Like, was there any like weird 
or kind of reserved interactions in, in that regard or were people like pretty stoked to try like a new you know local so on my original wine. bottle i think with wine experience time age all that stuff is like a huge selling point um you don't really want something new you want something aged you want something tried and true new stuff in wine is your i mean there there's new trial stuff like there's definitely new exciting things but i think wine has this general sense wine people have this general sense of wanting something that's old and so on my first label my logo was Petey lane established 2006 we planted the vineyard in 04 my dad made his first your dad yeah in yeah. 2006 under the name Peony lane and i wanted to graft off that time and be like yeah my dad's been making wine all this time and a couple things one i realized that like that doesn't matter that much and i can just tell the story and two everyone thought my wine was from 2006 they saw that date and mm. and uh just didn't connect it that the wine was from 2019 so it just caused some confusion and you know you don't want people to think too much when you're trying to sell so um it's definitely some of that like i think the first sale i did the guy was like oh well, don't tell me i'm your first sale like i'm the guinea pig you know but it went well. Like I said, I mean, I got great feedback. I sold a bunch of wine and it gave me a ton of confidence that for two years I'd invested both a hell of a lot of time and more than double what my peak net worth ever was into, into this. So like I'd invested my life 2x over into this business that I had no idea if it was going to work. Like even internally, I don't know if my wine, I didn't know if my wine was good. I needed that market reaction and I just never had it. So yeah, it was really hard, like dedicating my life to something that I have no idea if it's going to work. Yeah. And that was like two years, right? So like you already, that's in 2021 and you already obviously had the 2019, the first year and that's what you were selling, but you had already committed to the 2020 wine mm -hmm. and bought all those grapes and barreled them. And realistically committed to the 2021 because I got to place my order way before the great selling spring. season oh okay yeah fall. yeah so i placed my order in the spring so i was basically three years deep in buying grapes before i had a single sale what gave you the confidence to keep going were you just like this is you know what i'm just gonna go all in or is there any like you know sliver of hope or just so based on your dad's you know good wine based you know, off my dad's back. success um, me thinking, oh, my dad can do it. Well, I can do it better than him. And there's this one guy, honestly, like this, this one guy, his name's Kevin. He gave me a ton of confidence because he randomly tried my dad's wine years ago, probably my dad's 2012 vintage and didn't know my dad just bought it at a liquor store and had been wanting to move out here and was just like, man, I just haven't had good wine from the area. I haven't had good Colorado wine. He randomly bought a bottle off the shelf of my dad's wine and liked it so much that he typed up like a, a full single space page letter to my dad about how great the wine was. And then he moved here. He, he moved to Payonia because of my dad's wine. Wow. And this guy's like, he's one level below Master Psalm, which there's not many Master Psalms in the world, Master Sommelier. So like he knows wine. He's, and he's like very in the natural wine. And so that letter, one, gave me a ton of confidence because I'm like, this guy is serious about wine and I liked it that much. And also, I used to, you know, I'd have him over and we'd do tasting. So I was telling you like about having people over 
tasting my wine. When, when you opened it up prematurely. That was with him. Yeah. Nice. And so he'd never made wine. He didn't, you know, he's not going to tell me how to make wine, but tasting it with him and kind of being like, okay, cool. Yeah. This is solid. And having his influence, his voice in my ear saying, oh, it's good. Um, helped with the confidence, but still I needed market. I needed the product market fit. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, Use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. And yeah, so it's almost like that $70,000 expense or whatever almost is worth it because you did get his feedback and confidence. I mean, who knows? You may have not. We're here now. You may have quit if you didn't have that, right? So, Well, no, I was so invested, yeah. you know. Well, you never know what could happen, but that's... It's such a low time preference, like three years of committing. And then, I mean, how did you feel after that summer when you like sold out? Like, was it just, you're like, this is the right path. Like I'm doing this well. Now I know, and now I can be an even better winemaker. And you're just kind of like stoked for the the future. Yeah, you're like, cool. I know this works first. That was like, okay, this works, but I didn't know how well exactly. And my confidence was still not quite there. You know, I mean, I'm, one year of selling out, not a ton of wine, you know? So it was kind of, honestly, I, I moved to Telluride to ski bum and work in a restaurant and hope I could learn some more wine information and also just learn the service industry and just kind of see where that could fit in with my business. And the we were doing a wine class with the sommelier of a, a Bordeaux tasting. And so I brought out my Cab Sauv, which is a, a common wine grown in Bordeaux, to add to that tasting. And the sommelier and everyone who worked at the restaurant, a lot of whom knew wine, that tasted a lot of good wine, were like, wait, that's actually really good. And the, the sommelier was like, yeah, I will, buy, I will bring me a case. I want to buy your wine and put it on the menu. And so I, I didn't have much wine. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, I have to sell it to you at just normal price. I sold it to him for like $25 a bottle. And so they mark it up 3X to 75. And so I'm waiting tables that winter selling my wine for $75 a bottle to these people. And that was what really gave me the confidence to, I mean, that's just like an insane amount of money at that time for me for a bottle of wine. I would have never spent $75 for a bottle, but these people were and they were enjoying it. And I couldn't believe that. And was the local factor like, you think that helped with selling? Was there a lot of local Colorado wines on the menu there already or no? I was the only Colorado wine. So yeah, if people want a Colorado wine, they get mine. A lot of people don't know Colorado wine exists. And I, there's not bad reason for that. I mean, you've got to, it takes a long time to establish a winery. It takes, I mean, <laughs> how long did I go? Did it take me to get started? And the grapes were already grown. Like, if you plant a vineyard, you're not getting wine for, to sell for like eight years. So then to have your first wine and then actually build credibility and notoriety for your wine and not just your wine, but the area. I mean, you're talking 25 years for a first generation of that. And then you don't even know if you have the right grapes. So other people have to try different grapes. It just takes forever to get a wine region established. 
for it to mean something. And so people are just finding out about Colorado wine and, and that's real because it's been 50 years of, of since the first grapes were planted in Western Colorado. So there are people figuring out Colorado wine and there are a lot of people who just want to buy local stuff. I mean, that movement is, is insane these days. So a couple things working in both my and the other wineries favors that people want to try local wine. It's cool that it's the highest elevation. I'm growing in the highest elevation wine region in North America. So that it's its own unique effects on the wine, but also it's good. I mean, without that, it, it wouldn't be anything. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Obviously, the local movement is huge. We're big proponents of that. It's more decentralized. It makes more sense. Um, yeah, I guess getting into that, like what makes it different so in the wine here and your wine specifically, and maybe talking a little bit about all natural wine. This, you know, we talk a lot about health stuff on this podcast. So some people might be wondering why we're talking about wine, but you know, a lot of people like to consume alcohol, um, even if they value their health. But I think, you know, people like Ben Greenfield have talked about in the past. You know, the benefit people like to justify their vices to some degree. But I think what's most important is if you're going to drink alcohol, you want to make sure it's pretty clean. And from my understanding. What you're doing is pretty much like the most all-natural, clean wine you can get. So maybe shed some light on that and, and the elevation as well, how that affects the wine. So when I think about drinking alcohol, because I hear you like I'm trying to run a business on my own. I can't drink all the time, but I have unlimited alcohol. And also I have to taste wine for a living. So I think about alcohol in... Is it clean, first of all? Am I going to feel crappy the next day? And am I using this to enhance like a communal experience? Because there's something to alcohol making, I don't know, gatherings more connected. You know, you drop some boundaries, whatever. Obviously, people have been using that forever. So natural wine is, there's no like hard set definition. There's generally a few things. One, it is, made with wild yeast so you don't add a yeast strain that's cured i mean they're all originally from vineyards but they're grown in a lab and you just add that to your wine and it makes wine in this very specific way you kill off everything else except for that just so you, you know exactly what you're going to get and you could probably say there's some stuff for health for that i don't think it makes a huge difference but the rest like of the saying there might be more beneficial bacteria. In yeah, I, I can't. I can't totally yeah. speak to that. There's definitely more going on, and so a lot of people that want the wild fermentation, they are more focused on. You have to have good farming practices to be able to do that, because most yeast will turn wine to vinegar, and so, look realistically like my dad's just been doing this for 15 years and it works because we farm and we don't add anything we don't spray anything like we just have a very healthy microbiome and it ferments our wine well so i don't ask that many questions about it but if you do spray like if you're not organic you're probably going to get vinegar you're going to get a crappy wine so it's proof that your farming practices are good so it's like you're almost going like, it's like all or nothing kind of like, it's like you kind of commit to being fully all natural or like, there's not a good like in between, which. No, I'd say there's gray area because yeah. with, with the wild yeast, sure, you got to farm really well. But a lot of the 
and so what they would do if you're adding commercial yeast is you would kill off everything else by adding it adding it not sulfur usually so and so you could have added a bunch of sulfur mine has nothing added to it and then you age it for you know one to two to three years in barrel and during that process a lot of people add a lot of different stuff to it and I've like, I have some winemakers come visit and they're like, Oh, cool. You should add this to your wine. And I'm just like, instantly, I'm just like, no, I don't think so. I'd rather just not add anything because I can get good wine without any additives. And so it's this hands-off winemaking approach where it's let the wine do, do its thing. And don't try and have this like end result of, I want it to taste like this. So I'm going to add this to it. And so it's a, like I said, sulfites are the poster child because it's what people know but there's a ton of different things you can add i mean there's stuff for for taste texture color uh, <laughs> i mean literally anything you want to change in wine there's something you can add to it and so i don't have statistics for you all i know is when i open a bottle of something that's just off the shelf i legitimately kind of just feel horrible during and after and I was always told this, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, I can't drink red wine. They come over growing up with my dad and like, I can't drink your wine. I get headaches from red wine. And my dad would just say, no, try this. And they'd be fine. And they'd be amazed. And they'd be like, I want more of your wine because I can actually drink it. And I was, you know, I was young, 25, 26, starting the winery. You know, I, you don't feel horrible with hangovers. So... I never had totally had a visceral experience with that. And then visiting some friends over the holidays, I bought a hundred dollar bottle of wine and was like, this is awesome. I'm going to bring this over to my friends. Like it's a special night. I'll bring over some of my wine too. And first of all, none of my friends wanted to drink any, anything other than my wine, which I thought was funny. Cause I was like, no, I bought out for you guys. But I started drinking that hundred dollar wine cause I was psyched on it and I got a headache pretty quick. I never get that from wine because I mostly drink my wine, I guess. And I just, all I did was I dumped it out. I poured a glass of my wine, didn't wait any time, just didn't have any water or anything. And my headache just went away. And like, I had been telling people you won't get headaches from my wine, but like, I'd never had a visceral experience of other wine giving me a headache. And then my wine, like, I don't want to say curing it, but headache went away because I stopped drinking that other wine. And now drinking, like, I basically drink European wine outside of mine or someone else I know just because I, it's, it's visceral how horrible I feel drinking mass produced wine. Yeah. It's crazy. And it, I think it goes with like the whole food system, like the additives are like the end of the ingredient list and you know, the wines, like you don't even know what's really in there. I mean, and you don't know where these, you know, additives are derived from. I mean, a lot of these like crazy additives in foods and drinks are derived from like mold or some like weird, um, you know, source that is definitely not good for your health. And that's where you get like all these natural flavors and things. It's like, oh, well, that could mean like a thousand different things with the FDA or doesn't make you list that out. Mm -hmm. And I think California is like the worst in terms of like that from a wine perspective. Is that why you're saying European wine is like probably so better off or? I think, I think it's more just cultural. Generally in Europe, they like there, it's illegal to like not be organic 
in certain parts of France, at least. And organic means they're just not spraying the grapes. Certain things. Spraying with certain things. Or spraying, yeah, because you can have organic sprays. Sprays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's their their culture to be a little bit more hands-off, whereas Americans are builders. We, We think generally humans make everything better we can manipulate we can make it better and so that mindset goes into wine and you taste you you know what you want to taste and so you manipulate the wine to do that and i get it from a business perspective you know like you want to make sure you have a good product but i think you lose a lot of the magic and i mean wine is so sensory there's not like numbers or anything to say anything about like what's good wine if you like it it's good wine and it's such a visceral thing that if you don't have the variability between years you really lose a lot of the magic and you take on, on a risk with that is like you may have a bad year but if you don't have a bad year it's really hard to have a great year yeah i think that's I mean that's a good way to embody like life in general like people get so hyper fixated on like needing to control it's almost like two ends of the spectrum i guess but they need to be like always you know high input Mm -hmm. high output like type of life and that's what we see with farming in general right that's like the whole industrial farming methodology right it's like high input high output when in terms of like regenerative agriculture it's like low input high output so if you just kind of like let nature do its thing I think people would be astounded at, you know, what you can get. And yeah, if you go to Europe, I mean, you go to like Italy or some things and it's, for example, like you have a good piece of meat or something like you only put maybe a little salt on this and that's it because you don't want to like ruin the flavor. Like you don't want to just cover it and all this stuff. It's like you want to taste it in its full, you know, presence of what you're eating. And I think Americans are very disconnected from a lot of aspects of food farming i mean just life in general so Mm -hmm. that's interesting but yeah so you guys you don't spray anything you don't add anything at all or sulfur compounds um that's organic considered organic three times a year to drive away what is known as powdery mildew and that doesn't disrupt our microbiome we're fine to go. It's really pretty minimal impact. It comes off of the rain. Um, I guess like everything. Do you think it's worth pursuing like a organic label? Is that a thing with wine as well? USDA organic? Or yeah, is that just a whole? Because um, from what I've understood from just like food producers in general, I mean, it's obviously a big expense and cost and headache to do that. But do you think it's worth it? Something you have in mind? So it's something I think about and a few things run through my head. One is that there's weirdly a like negative connotation for organic wine in the United States. I think a lot of that is like, it just people consider it like barn wine, someone wine, someone's a farmer and they just happen to make wine, um, which in a lot of cases is just not good. I've had a lot of people be like, wow, your natural wine is actually good. I've had a lot of natural wine that tastes bad. And it's like, that's real. You're leaving it up to nature. You've got to be pretty confident in how things go. So weirdly a negative connotation for some people. And if I'm doing that, if I'm paying money to be organic and going through all the bureaucratic nightmare, which like I said, is like my personal hell. 
I better be able to raise my price because I'm already selling out. And when I think about wine pricing, I'm kind of already in this weird gray zone where if you're above $30, you might as well be $50. It's just how wine pricing seems to work. Um, it's like, if you buy a lot of people, if you buy a $30 bottle of wine, that's like a nice weekend. You know, you're like, we're going to do a nice dinner tonight. $40, man, you get up to $50. You're like, oh, this is like a special night for us. And then like $100 anniversary and stuff. So like you want to fill those reasons why people buy wine. But if you just raise your price a little bit because it's organic, like you kind of get in this weird middle ground that's not worthwhile. So I make natural wine. There's no additives. I sell direct to consumer. My customers know me. That's what matters right now. Yeah, I mean, that's like just the brilliance of direct to consumer and, you know, talking about it is that you can, you know, they can verify. They could, you know, chat you up and ask questions. They can listen to this podcast. And that's what it's all about. So, yeah, shifting gears to Bitcoin mm -hmm. because obviously that's something you're very passionate about. We talk a lot about, you know, the decentralized way of growing wine and low time preference. Obviously, these values are aligned. I mean, you grew up like in a rural area, value proof of work. When did the Bitcoin story happen for you? Was that before or after you jumped in to the winery? And how did that, you know, how did you get orange filled? How did that evolve and align your thinking with this uh, low time preference? You know? I mean, it's been pretty damn well. Like, uh, really, like, click made the low time preference part of the wine click for me, and just educating myself on that. But I found figured out Bitcoin after I started the winery. But the impetus to do so started around the time I was starting the winery, where I was always super into personal finance, not taking big risks, just investing in like passively investing in an index fund. Roth IRA, saving money, making sure I had a strict budget and, you know, doing things the right way, quote unquote, in the fiat system. And then in 2019, when they started doing QT, there was um, basically a big shock to the system that caused bank interest rates to go down. And so my baseline was always inflation is 2%. I can offset inflation with my 2% high interest savings account. I'm good. That's zero. I'm fine. It's just a little bit of money. I'm not trying to make money on my money, on that money at least. And so when that went to zero, it was kind of like, huh. So I just have to lose money. Okay. That doesn't sit well with me. So then I started asking questions. I mean, it took a long time. I was living with a Bitcoiner at the time. And um, during the, the COVID crash, I'd, I remember I was working upstairs and he comes upstairs and is like oh yeah just bought some more bitcoin and like that's my only memory of the covid crash um he was just learning about it too at the time but uh, then i didn't really think much of it he was my crazy libertarian friend i was his npc buddy let i probably give myself a little bit more than that but um i hadn't figured things out yet and so he didn't really try me and then when i moved back to Ionia, i moved in with my best friend from from growing up here and he's like the smartest person i know we'd always talk about like politics geopolitics finance economics like we have a lot of the same interests and so 
little did I know he was a Bitcoiner and had been for a little while. And so obviously I respect his opinion and we just keep talking about it more. And he just keeps saying like, you should look into it. And so while I was building this house, I just had like six hours of Bitcoin podcasts on a day. And like Bitcoiners talk about proof of work and I was building my own house, learning about Bitcoin and, you know, didn't really have the wherewithal to be like, okay, cool. That's Bitcoin. And then, you know, actually do something with it until the price started going up. And then I was like, oh, I got to buy some. And so I kind of had my, my big, like, holy crap, that's what Bitcoin is. Like it's true scarcity, like what that actually means in the world at the first time we hit 60k um and so when we went back down it was like wow this is the best opportunity i could ever have even after like putting my life savings into bitcoin at the top <laughs> but it was still like so thankful because i understood what bitcoin was at that time and so learning about that has given me i think a lens into low time preference that i kind of just was naturally already there and it's given me a, a framework to think about that with the rest of my life. So I was naturally inclined to move that direction. Like I said, the winery fit super well. But going back to what we were talking about at the beginning is my health was in a rad, bad spot. And I was kind of just grinding through it. I mean, I'm 25. I'm strong. I do things. But something was off. And so going into 2022, I was like, okay, if I'm going to succeed in the winery, I need to get my body right. And what's the most important things there is um, exercise and nutrition. And so I kind of was just interested in learning in that and didn't really think about it too much uh, or thought about it a lot, but like didn't really have much actionable advice. And so then where I may have met you initially at the Beef Initiative Conference here, that just really opened my eyes into beef. And mm -hmm. I started just like, not going carnivore or anything, but I was like, I'm just going to try and I'm going to just, if I eat a steak for dinner and like no greens or anything, I'm just going to give that a shot. And I kind of cut out carbs and everything. And then it's like, whoa, I can think better. I can do better. I have more energy. And so all these things have just kind of fit into my low time preference framework that was natural for me, but I hadn't quite figured out. Yeah. I think the way you say like a lens and that's like the way to think about it. That's how I think about it. It's because like, once you start down this path, you just start to question everything. It's like, oh, well, like, how could I optimize my health? How could I optimize my finances? What else can I do to empower myself? Because it's all about knowledge, right? The more you learn about these things from the non-traditional sense of like education that we were brought up on, the more empowered you feel and yeah, the more vitality you could potentially bring to your life. And I think that's really what decentralization is all about. But having that lens and connecting the dot and then you just have this moment, you're like, oh, like I could use this principle to like all aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty cool. So I grew up on this farm. My dad's, my parents' goal was to eat, eat all the food they grew, drink all the wine they make. Like we had rainwater, we had spring water, solar for electricity. All of our heating was either passive solar or one wood fireplace. Like our, our house was built to be off the grid. I grew up off the grid and I kind of didn't really, I wanted to rebel, you know, I, my, it was, that was my parents thing. I needed to find my own path. And so finding Bitcoin kind of gave me this 
my own lens. It was like my own gave me freedom to like go back into living a relatively decentralized life and providing for myself with my own, like under my own power, I guess, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's like, it's so empowering to me. And I, I think about this and it's like, yeah, it's taken years to develop this perspective, but then you just realize how it applies to like all avenues and you try and infect other people with this perspective, but it can be pretty hard. And it can also be pretty like lonely on this journey as well. So I guess that's awesome that like your best friend kind of shared that perspective. I mean, the beef initiative, all these events, I guess, how has getting more involved and putting yourself out there on social media, for example, how has that like reinforced your mindset and also like, you know, helped you realize what you're doing is this like the right path and kind of empowered you even more? Well, the, the thing to me is that I keep making, meeting awesome people that are into it. Like, if I were to reach into any basket of people I know and draw someone out, the highest probability of them being smart, productive, like cool, all the things I want to find in a person and a friend is in the Bitcoin basket. And that is above anything like how I know. Like, I've done my research. I, I feel good about what I know, but like in the additional factor that every most every person I meet in Bitcoin is like a badass, that is just like, okay, cool. So I should just be diving into this further. Like this is this is the path I need to go. And so anything on social media is just like that's just me wanting to go down the path that I want to go down, and it just seems to be the best path of people to surround yourself with that's what i've found at least yeah i i've realized that as well and i think it's because it does take like a certain mindset to like leave the thought of like the traditional centralized system so it's like you have to be willing to put yourself out there you have to be willing to think outside the box and naturally the people who do that are willing to take risks in other aspects of life for their you know for a good reason and for a good return on that risk. Mm -hmm. And that just leads to you know, like this great group of people who, you know, business minded, entrepreneurial minded, or like just more, you know, decentralized in general. So they value all these things. And yeah, I, I think the biggest thing for me is like not being afraid to put yourself out there and then yeah, valuing, I know you value heavily the in-person like meetings and meetups. So mm -hmm. I would say if you're someone, you know, listening, like, don't be afraid to like go to your local Bitcoin meetup. They all exist or in general, get on social media and you don't have to like put yourself out there in a big way like Ben and I do, but you can meet some really cool people. Yeah. It's amazing. The connections. And I mean, a lot of people, it's just like some anon account. No one like they just work, you know, there's not many followers. They're not trying to build anything. And, and I just meet them and I'm like, Whoa, you are like, an extremely successful badass person and i never would have known at all i mean you don't put yourself out there on twitter and it's just like these all these random bitcoiners that i meet just tend to be so badass that i find myself just angling more towards them because that's who i want to be around it's this what's addicting to me is being around people that are taking responsibility for themselves taking responsibility for everything that happens to them whether it's good or bad and wanting to build and help their friends. I mean, like one of the most important things for me and, and one of the beautiful things about owning a winery is all the community it builds. Like I trade wine for a lot of my food. And when people come over 
share a glass and we have a great conversation. And that is some serious connection building. And in Bitcoin, I find that a lot of people really just appreciate the work that other people do as well as obviously who they are interpersonally, but it's, they really appreciate the value that you give to the world. And it's, I mean, it's vice versa. It's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty cool to just be around people that value other people so highly. Yeah. It's really that accountability. Um, that's big for me as well. Cause it's like, I always say, it's like you can control what you can control in your life. And that's like, if you drive that home and really just, not worry as much about things that are out of your control and you just drive that forward and that accountability and responsibility will take you so far in life. And I think that's really what's absent from the mainstream 99.9% of people in society. So I'm curious, you know, you grew up in a pretty decentralized life. You obviously had these values installed in you, may have not even realized it, connected it now with Bitcoin, with health, all these things matter. You're still a young guy. How do we get more people, especially our age, men that are living the trad lifestyle on board with any of this? Because this is something I ask most like young guys who have interviewed because it's a struggle. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear what you think. So I've one friend I've convinced to dive down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And he's also someone just like my friend to me was someone that I, I talked about geopolitics and economics and stuff all the time. And so, you know, he's primed for this stuff from my lens. Cause that's, I'm a economics, geopolitics, macroeconomics nerd. Like that's, I, that's my, like, even before I found Bitcoin, that's just, that was my veg out time was listening to macroeconomics podcasts. That's not for everyone, you know? So in my convincing people, I've only been able to convince one guy who was also interested in talking about that stuff. So I've learned that me talking to people about Bitcoin, you got to have that for me to be able to convince you through words. So my really, my goal and what I've found to be maybe a little bit more successful is just through my actions. Like I want to be out there as a Bitcoiner and successful. And so if my brand is successful, I want to link Bitcoin to my brand as much as possible. Where Bitcoiners are like, oh, dude, you're linking Bitcoin to your brands because you want to graft on Bitcoin's credibility. To normies, I want to graft big, my brand's credibility to Bitcoin and get people to figure it out that way. And so my real thought on just how to get other people that I'm close to that live a cool lifestyle or just everyone figured out into Bitcoin is to just be successful as a Bitcoiner and link those two things. And it's early. I mean, I figured out Bitcoin in 20, late 2020 and my business is still young, but I've all of last year and all of this year, I'll be selling my wine for Bitcoin and having a sign at my farmer's market stand that says Bitcoin preferred. And a lot of people ask. And so, you know, I'm trying to sell them wine. I'm not going to go on this big Bitcoin diatribe, but I give them like a, a quick quib, you know, whatever it is, whatever I think of in that moment. And I just want to be a touch point for people because it takes a lot of work, a lot of humility to really dive into Bitcoin and understand it yourself. And you have to do it on your own. Like the concept of orange pilling someone, cool. My buddy, I convinced, but what I convinced him for him to do the work. He still had to do the work. 
Well, that's what it's all about, right? It's like you can't subscribe to this mindset and then just like, like you have to do the research, the work, the knowledge. It's the same thing for like your health or, or whatever. It's like you want to empower someone to want mm -hmm. to do that dive in the rabbit hole and all the research because that is what it means to be decentralized is that you have the knowledge for you because it's your situation it's your biology like your individual situation is going to be different but yeah i think the awareness we talked about on here um before is like if you want to spread you know more of the bitcoin circular economy like a farmer's markets just go Go up and just ask every single vendor, do they accept Bitcoin? Because if 10, 20, 30 people do that, they might start accepting Bitcoin. And I'm curious, have you seen with other vendors at Farmers Markets ask you, have you seen them start to accept Bitcoin? Do you see the growth of the circular economy now at, what are you, in your third year of Farmers Markets compared to the so, first one? I know they just got started. So Yeah, just getting started for the year. but. Yeah, definitely. Um, two Bitcoiners that are at farmers markets, the ones I go to, I've got them set up to accept Bitcoin. They didn't really know how to do it first. And, and realistically, like I started accepting Bitcoin last year. I didn't know how to work the Lightning Network. I didn't know how to teach working the Lightning Network. So a lot of people were like coming up to spend Bitcoin. And I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I had to teach myself. Um, but yeah, vendors see that and they're curious. You know, everyone's like, oh, crypto, huh? You accept crypto? I'm like, I accept Bitcoin. And they're curious just because there are people that come up and specifically buy from me because I'm a Bitcoiner. Because Bitcoiners want to support each other. And they see that. And of course, you want money. You know, you want more sales. And so if you can get that with Bitcoin, great. But they don't really understand it. And there's not enough people asking about it for them to grab on. So, yeah, my two Bitcoiner friends that are at the farmer's markets I'm at, they accept Bitcoin and they have signs because I've pressured them to have signs. And, you know, every once in a while they do a sale. But it's more like, yeah, we're just passionate about Bitcoin. We just want to have it out there. But for a normal farmer's market person, for them to, one, be curious about Bitcoin, they have to see me getting a lot of sales. So then they're curious about Bitcoin. And they're really curious for me to allow them, like for me to get them set up. And so then they're set up, but they don't really know how to work it. And for them to want to put in the time, the effort to learn how to work it and not forget how to work it, they have to actually have people coming up and forcing them to learn and use it. Because there's a lot of people that I've gotten, have been like, yeah, download this app. You know, you're all set. Good to go. They don't know how to work it. And they don't have anyone ever come up to them. So eventually that app gets just gets deleted and they don't care about it. So there's there's a couple things. Like people say, hodl your Bitcoin, don't sell it. Yeah, for sure. Do that. You know, you want Bitcoin in the future, obviously. But if you want Bitcoin to be accepted, if you want it to be super usable, if you want more people to learn about it and understand it and value it the number go up that matters is their personal sales for businesses specifically. And so if you get these businesses everywhere, start saying Bitcoin accepted here because people are spending Bitcoin because people have been asking to spend Bitcoin because they just want to make more money. I mean, that's Bitcoin's whole thing is like, we want money that works when everyone is selfish. 
if all these businesses just want to make more money, if they want to act in their own interest and in their own interest, it is to accept Bitcoin because Bitcoiners spend at places that accept Bitcoin. They'll accept it. They'll have signs saying that. And then more people will want to get Bitcoin because they see it everywhere. That's all I'm trying to be is the touch point. And so if you support Bitcoin companies, you make them stronger and other businesses see, oh, that company is strong. What are they doing differently? Oh, they have Bitcoin. I should start doing that. So that really increases the Bitcoin circular economy, but you have to have demand for there to be supply. Yeah, it's a, it's a positive feedback loop that's just starting to crawl. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still pretty pretty sparse, but yeah, the momentum can be powerful, I think. And that's why it's on the consumer side of things because the producers are going to be apprehensive, but if you're a consumer and you're into Bitcoin, like just go to your farmer's market and start asking everyone mm-hmm. if they take Bitcoin. It's going to take a lot. They're like, yo, I just worked really hard to produce this thing. And you're asking me, you're asking to give me money that could devalue 50% tomorrow for this. And that's like, that's where we are with Bitcoin. You know, I mean, all of last year was tough getting people on board because the price kept going down. You know, I had all these boomers coming out to be, be careful, son. The price could drop 50%. And I was like, fucker it's down 70 percent, and i want more you know so it just takes a lot for people to understand it you have to get over that hurdle of yeah it could devalue it could lose value for sure but the inherent properties its inherent monetary policy is what gives it value in the long run and it just it takes a lot of effort when people are busy doing their own thing and you know they just want cash flow why would i want this other money i have so much other things to worry about there has to be enough demand to push them towards that yeah, and I think that's like why the beef initiative is so great because it's like their mindset is actually aligned. Like they're very much against the system. I mean, they're a small producer, most likely. They're pretty decentralized. Like fundamentally, they will get it if they just open their mind like a little bit, but they just need that that impetus to kind of push them to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And I'm excited to see because for a while it was, I mean, just being in the space for... I mean, when I first got into Bitcoin, like 2017, 2018, seriously, it's like, yeah, nobody would ever spend it. Be like, just hold all, like, everything. And that's changed a lot, and I'm stoked about it. And I think that's just going to continue. And, yeah, peer-to-peer, exchanging value for value, these are all, like, this is what it's all about at the end of the day. And, and you're even doing that at the bartering level with your wine, which is super cool because that's just – that doesn't get more decentralized than that. Yeah. Trading wine for stuff is really cool. And I definitely go out of my way and honestly probably buy things that I don't need just because I can trade for wine. It's fun sharing product with someone else in a very direct way. That's like, yeah, no money involved. We're not going to worry about exact value for value. We're just going to like, make sure everyone, we feel good about this. And that's some, like I, I orient myself towards great human connection and that's a pretty awesome human connection. Do you like look back on your whole life now and like that lens and really just like gain a sense of appreciation for like how you kind of were brought up and had these values instilled in you um, from an early age without realizing it? Yeah. I mean, the, like I hated growing up here. I was bullied. I didn't fit in. It was such a big change. I had so many awesome friends in Paonia. When I say I hated growing up here, like I hated a lot. There was some serious aspects that were really hard. And obviously, like, some great things. But it's pretty hard moving from Austin, Texas, where I have a 
ton of friends and great friends and um, moving to a town where you're got to be with the same kids for the next 10 years and never fit in. And so, you know, it was a hard life growing up here, but I think back to like what my life would have looked like if I had stayed in Austin. What age did that happen? I was eight. So second grade. And I'm so thankful to be able to move now, move back home to a farm. And that's just like, that's my normal where so many people like my dad, his life goal, just like Bitcoiners was to buy a farm, retire and, and just do that. And I just have that. I, I, you know, took it for granted, didn't know what I had until, until I came back and really started experiencing it in my own way. And I, I kind of needed Bitcoin to have the lens to be able to really appreciate it. But yeah, building this house, like there's no way I want my kids to grow up in a city. I want my kids to just run down to the river. I don't see them all day. There's so many times I almost died, man. Like just in the river, like as a kid, no supervision. That's what I want for my kids, man. Like you just, you learn how to live. You learn how to take risks. You learn how to just life just by being out there and living and, you know, you live by the rules of nature. If, if, if you fall, something hurts, you know, that sucks. Yeah. I think Jordan Peterson says something like, let your kids do dangerous things carefully. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. You know. yeah. Like obviously there's, you know, I'm going down to the river behind my house. There's no one like there lurking to kidnap anyone, but it's also a raging river and I'm playing alongside it and I'm 10 years old. So stuff can happen. I don't know. It's a, it's a life, that I, it's a childhood that I really now appreciate and want to give my kids for sure. That's awesome. I mean, that's all like, that's life in a nutshell. I think I for sure, same way. Like we used to go camping and hiking a lot when I was younger, um, you know, go visit Europe where my mom's from and really just be out in nature, totally disconnected from like the centralized society. And then you just kind of like take all that for granted. It's really easy to do that as a kid. Cause you just don't conceptualize That's these things. It's just what's there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But coming full circle and then really appreciating it and, you know, telling your parents that you really appreciate like everything that the situation that you were brought up in because so many people aren't that fortunate. Actually, you know, the overwhelming majority are not. Mm-hmm. And they're also striving for this. A lot of the people in our community. So that's awesome. And yeah, I mean, you still have a whole life ahead of you to now keep those values going to the next generation, which For sure. I'm just getting started. Yeah. So. Is the most exciting part. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, hell yeah, this is a great conversation. Where can people find you, your wine, everything? Yeah. So I ship wine all over the United States from Peony Lane, except Utah.com, except Utah, Alabama, <laughs> And a couple other states with some backwards laws. But mostly the United States, I ship directly. That's P E O N Y lane.com. And I'm on Twitter at Ben Justman. And that's, uh, I'm at a local farmer's market near you if you're in Western Colorado. Just come out and see me. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, thanks so much for coming on and having me. It's a beautiful house, people. Paonia, Colorado is beautiful. If you're going to drink wine, just get some of the best quality all natural wine. I can attest. I don't drink very often. Like, I don't know, maybe one drink every one to two months. And I have had the wine definitely can confirm that the hangover headache, noticeable 
differences does not exist, which is awesome. And that's just proof of the pudding. Also, the fact that like you can do it this natural way shows that how the ecosystem you're growing the grapes in is, you know, as nature intended, and it's actually healthy. And yeah, he's a great follow on Twitter, aka the Pocket Steak Guy. I know we didn't dive into that, but very refreshing content. And yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time. Thank you.